0: Church, y'all, y'all awake? Man, y'all sound so good, okay? I know they're not here to defend themselves, but that last song, all right. So, first service at 8:45, okay. We'll give them a little bit of grace. They were like, God of revival, boy. I was like, Okay, that's not good, right? <laughs> then second service was a little bit better, but y'all brought it this morning, man. I love it. I mean, if we're gonna proclaim that, let's proclaim it. Let's not be like I'm gonna be my boy. All right. Oh, man, it's so good to uh, see you. Uh, if you're a first-time guest, welcome. My name's Dustin. I'm a teaching pastor here. And I know how overwhelming it can be uh, to check out a new place, but we are grateful you are here with us. Um, over the last couple weeks, we have been digging into the Word um, in the book of Acts, which is this incredible story written by a guy named Luke, who um, is really dictating the growth and the birth of the early church. And so uh, this morning we're gonna be in Acts chapter 3 and 4. So it's a lot of uh, ground to cover. So it's gonna be about three hours worth of me teaching. Lucky you, uh, just kidding. Um, but before we dig into uh, God's word together, one thing I know this is kind of last minute, but we need to celebrate this as a church body. Um, at our Harrison Bridge campus this afternoon at 2 o'clock, we are having a groundbreaking uh, ceremony and prayer service, if you will. Um, if you don't know, we, uh, man, God has been doing amazing things over the last couple years at our Harrison Bridge campus, across all of our campuses. But um, we're about to start construction to expand their worship space. And so um, we're still waiting on one permit. Imagine that, okay? But we're waiting on that, and that should be approved at the end of this week, beginning of next week. Um, the majority of the building materials are actually already there. And so uh, we have this plan. So today at 2 o'clock, Uh, Anybody and everybody's welcome to come um, and just join us. We celebrate that and pray for it, uh, what God's going to do in that community. And if you uh, call this place home, you know this is so true. We're one church. So what happens at that campus, we're going to celebrate with this campus or at this campus. And so um, it's just awesome what God is doing and how um, each of our campuses are growing and expanding. And so continue to pray for that if you can't make it, um, but we would love to see you there. So this morning... We're picking up where we left off, Reader's Digest version. We have seen in Acts, Jesus, he, he died, was resurrected, came back to the disciples and said, hey, I need you to sh- spread the news, the message of who I am to, to the ends of the earth. Okay, that's pretty much what he says. Wants you to wait here. We see that the Holy Spirit comes and does an incredible work in their lives and gives them uh, really some power and boldness. And they go out uh, to a crowded place, Peter preaches really the very first uh, distinctly Christian sermon, and 3,000 people come to know Jesus. I mean, it's like every pastor's dream, all right? Um, And so Peter does that, and from that, what we see is the early church is born. So we have uh, 3,000 people plus that are gathering together, and where we left off in chapter 2 last week is out of those 3,000, we see really three distinctive characteristics about them really under the umbrella of being devoted. And they were devoted, what scripture says at the end of chapter 2, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. So they, they were at their core committed to the word of God. Both the Old Testament, because obviously at the time, that was their scriptures. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. So they were dedicated, um, or dedicated and devoted themselves to the scriptures. Um, they were also devoted to the message of Jesus, what they had seen, what they had experienced. It wasn't like, okay, I can't talk about that. Man, it was everything to them. And so they were devoted. That was at the core of who they were. We also saw that the early church was devoted to radical fellowship. That's were the points last week. And radical fellowship wasn't just a, hey, let me just kind of go to church and do y'all want to go eat Mexican and everybody's hungry right now. But it was, hey, we're doing life together. If there was a level of intimacy among the early believers that said, hey, I got your back and I know you have mine. So we're going to pray for each other. We're going to do life together. We're going to go to church together and worship together. We're going to pray for one another. We're going to be in in each other's homes, and we're going to break bread, Scripture says. We're going to do all of these things together because we need each other. So they were devoted to radical fellowship. And then lastly, we saw they were devoted to sacrificial generosity. Out of the overflow of what God had done in their life through Jesus and what they had experienced, they knew that for each other, they had to take care of one another. And they loved each other so deeply that it wasn't just like, hey, I know you need a little help. Here's five bucks. It was, all right, church, we need to step up to the plate. What are we going to do? Because I know if I have a time of need, you guys are going to take care of me. So let's take care of one another. That was the kind of community that they had. And so what we see, what Luke is painting in these first few chapters is really a, a beautiful picture, bird's eye view of what the early church what the church of god the body of christ should look like and really within the body what we as believers should be doing and what we're going to see in chapter 3 and 4 is really they are stepping outside of the walls of the church or the body And beginning to interact with a lost and broken world. And Luke is beginning to paint the picture of what that looks like. Or what it should look like for us as believers. And so what we will see today is really the very first encounter to opposition or with opposition to the spreading of Jesus' name. So... I'm gonna read the very first six verses of chapter three. I'll just tell the rest of the story and then we'll pick up in chapter four. Like I said, we have a lot of ground to cover, but here's what's so interesting. I shared this in the first two services. I don't know if you ever experienced this. So I, I, I said this a couple of weeks ago. I help coach, and when I say help, like in all caps, help coach um, our middle son's church basketball team. And, um, and so which I really don't know anything about basketball other than what I've read on um, Google and watched on YouTube, okay? And so, but uh, you know, so anyway, yesterday was the last game of the season. Our youngest son had one game on one court. When it was over, we had to go to the other court for our our, our middle son's game, and there's like a big curtain. So I step around the curtain, and I notice the other team warming up, and they are huge, all right? I'm thinking to myself, these are grown men that middle school, my middle school boy is about to play. And so much so that I go to my wife Sloan and to some other parents, and I'm like, are we playing a high school team? Like, what's the deal? These guys are huge. They have facial hair. Like, do you have facial hair in middle school? Besides like that awkward stash, all right? But I'm thinking, we're, we're going to die. So I tell the other parents, we're going to get demolished, right? And they're like, yeah, you are. Good luck. <laughs> you know, so anyway, I'm like, all right, this is not going to be good. So then... The boys are warming up, and we have a relatively smaller team, and I hear them talking. They're checking out the other team warming up, and they're like, we're going to get killed. You know, like, look how big they are. They're going to, we're going to get packed. They're just going to, and so anyway, so we get down with warm-ups. We bring them in, and now the head coach, this is going to show you why he's the head coach. He's like, all right, bring it in, guys. Hey, listen, don't worry about how big they are. He's like, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And I'm like, man, what a great quote, you know? I'm like, man, that's like a good coaching quote. And so, like, what I want to say is say, hey, guys, gather around. There is no hope. (laughs) We're going to lose. That's what I want to say. They are huge, and we are not so Y'all want to go eat Zaxby's? You know, that's what I want to say. But I didn't, you know. And so I'm like, hey, guys, listen, we're going to play faster. We're going to play harder. We're going to be smarter. We're going to go get them. You know, so I'm thinking, I'm walking away like, okay, that was stupid. You know, we're going to lose. And so then we play the first quarter, first seven minutes of the game. And I was like, oh, we got this. And you got to think that the disciples, as they break out of really this holy huddle of what God has been doing through the Holy Spirit, that they could be like, oh gosh, this is going to be bad. They're going to kill us. They killed Jesus. It's going to be bad for us. But I have an instinct that looking, because they've been empowered by the Holy Spirit, they're like, we got this. I'm not impressed by this opposition. God's on our side. And that's what they do. So they break out of this. Let's read in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says this, you can follow on the screens if you don't have a Bible with you. It says, now Peter and John, they were going up uh, to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth, so he's paralyzed from birth, was being carried. Whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate. To ask for alms of those entering in to the temple. Now let's pause right there. So outside the temple there's a wall and there's actually nine different gates. Well this one gate called the beautiful gate because the gate is beautiful. Oh good good job, y'all are smart. Right, it's a beautiful gate was kind of the main gate it was what scholars believe is the eastern gate into the temple. And it was beautiful because it was actually made out of Corinthian bronze that looked like gold. And like I said, it was the main entrance. So what we see is this man who is laid there daily as paralyzed. And he is asking for alms. Now part of Judaism and the Jewish culture is he's asking for money and food. And it was kind of Uh, you know, dignitary, if you will. I I just made up a word, okay? So, uh, but it was a part of their culture. Like if someone asked for money, like you need to probably give them some money. And so help help them out a little bit. And so he's there outside this high traffic area asking for money and food and begging. So listen to how Peter and John respond. It says, so um, verse three, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and they said, look at us. Now let me pause there, and I'm going to probably make everybody in the room feel at least slightly awkward. Now it's okay, all right? But think about how kind of weird or awkward this might be, all right? Let's put this in modern day context. We have all, every single one of us, have experienced at some point in our life, whether it is a busy intersection, corner of a grocery store, getting off a ramp of a highway, someone standing there who has a sign, they're homeless, they need food, they need money or whatever. We have all, okay, no one is better than in, in anybody else. Been in that awkward moment where we do, it's like, what do you do? It's like in your heart, you're like, I feel like I should give him some money. And sometimes we do that sometimes it's like he's going to kill us or she is going to do something. I just don't know what to do. And oftentimes, because I know I have been in this, I'm like paralyzed and I just don't do anything. Are you with me? And then you drive off and it's like, I, me and Sloan will have this conversation. I'm like, we should probably do something. So to kind of scratch the, il- uh, the, uh, the itch of our guilt, we came up with, or we saw on the internet somewhere, not we, Sloane. <laughs> found these things called blessing bags. So in like a Ziploc bag, we'll put some like toiletries, like I think it's like five bucks or maybe $10 bill, some different things with all good intentions that when we see those people that we would say, you know what, let's do it. And we have, but oftentimes we're like, yeah, that's not. But let's be honest, what we often do in those cases is what? Look straight ahead. Don't make eye contact, right? Let's be real, we're not judging anybody. We're all being like, don't make eye contact. That means they think you're, you're given. They're going to come close. Just look straight ahead. Now think about this. This guy has been laying at this gate for 40 plus years. Scholars believe that he is 40 plus years old and since birth has been there asking for money. He was a staple of the entrance into the temple. This isn't Peter and John's first time going to church. And so... Usually I can imagine that they just walk by and they're like, oh, there's the guy. And in this moment, they stop and they look at him. And then they say, look at us. And this isn't like a moment, like I think our knee jerk reaction is at least what I think about. is like when I was in trouble with my dad and he was giving me like a stern talk. And he would say, look at me when I'm talking to, talking to you, boy. You know what I'm talking about? It wasn't like that. It was like, hey, look at us. And listen to what Peter uh, says to him. He says, look at us, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Walk. What an incredible moment. So this guy is there. Let's just be real. He knows he has a physical impairment. If I could imagine, he probably has no hope. The greatest hope that he has is to get a few bucks, maybe something to eat from these two guys walking by. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, not only is this guy's physical needs about to be met, his spiritual needs are about to be met as well. It's an incredible, incredible moment. And so they... they, Say to them, hey, listen, this is so important to us. We don't have silver and gold, which was probably true. They're not lying to them. But what we do have, we give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Here's the first point this morning that we see in the early church, especially with Peter and John, is that they valued the gospel. They valued the gospel. Now, I don't think they didn't value gold and silver. But they knew that even if they had a coin or some cash to give this guy, it was going to be spent. So what they decided to do was to give him the greatest gift this man could have ever have received, and it was the gospel. It was the message by having his physical needs met, but then also his spiritual needs met. Because what it says is they picked him up, they grabbed him by the hand, they lifted him up, and he went praising God into the temple. I mean, he got Pentecostal real quick. He is hooting and hollering, praising God. And so it's all started because they valued the gospel. It was important to them. They could have said, oh, we'll pray for you, buddy. We got to get to church. But they said, no, this guy's life needs to be changed. Now think about this in our context. For every single one of us, we place value on things in our life. There's different levels, and we could probably do a survey of what do you value, what do you value, and it could be a whole slew of things. But we all place value on different things in our life. And the value that we place really equates to the level of priority that we give. So where you spend your time, your money, your energy are important to you. And I could probably be a fly on the wall in your life for at least a little bit and see, oh, well, they love to do this, this, and this. Those are priorities in your life. Another way to ask is if your house was a catch on fire, what are the three most important things? Now, for my wife, it would probably be first our kids. Those are the three most important things. But if you were to clump those into one, it would probably be something sentimental, and then our dog, and then I would probably be somewhere down the list, okay? That's probably true. She's shaking her head. All right? I get that. I know my place in her, in her world, all right? I wouldn't do that to you, Sloan. I promise you I wouldn't. Um, you'd be first. Um, I'll let the kids defend for themselves. I don't know. I'm just kidding. But anyway, we all know that there are certain things that we value in life. And let me be very clear. If you are a follower of Christ, if your life has been changed by Jesus and you say you are a Christian, the most valuable thing to your life is what Jesus has done for you. And oftentimes in our life, that takes a back back seat and we make the priority things that are so out of whack. And so, what ends up happening is we kind of push the, the gospel message and what Jesus has done. Whether we forget about it, whether we become numb to it, and we push it aside. And and here's the reality when it comes to the gospel: a misplaced value on the gospel leads to a misdirected life. When we value other things above the gospel, our life, our lives are totally in different directions, and they're not how God um, defined it and, and designed it to be. Our life and the value that we place on the gospel is way more important than how good our kids are at sports, what grades they make in school, what relationship you're on next, what clothes you wear, the job you have, the car you drive, and the house you live in. The most important thing about you and me is how do we view what Jesus has done in us and through us and how does he want to work? And for the disciples, you want to know why the early church spread? Because they were committed to it. It wasn't like, you know what? I just, I'm not going to share Jesus today. Johnny's got a sports tournament. We'll get, to, we'll get to it. It was important to them. It was everything to them. And so what we see is this, this paralyzed guy begins to leap and to praise God all throughout the temple. Now, as you can imagine, as he's doing that, people are like, what in the world's happening? And they're like, hey, is that the guy that's been there for 40 years? What happened? He's walking now. Who did this? Have you heard? And the crowd is forming. I mean, if it was modern day, it'd be all over TikTok. It would be on TMZ, I'm sure, Okay. But people are talking and they're crowding around thinking, what is going on? And I love Peter because what Peter does is he uses it as as an opportunity to preach another sermon. So he preaches a second sermon because he must have been a Southern Baptist preacher, you know. And he's like, all these people here, let me preach. And he preaches this sermon. And what Scripture says, we're going to read it in just a second, is now an additional 5,000 people come to know Christ. And at the tail end of his message, this is what's so interesting. He's literally giving the invitation, and the the officials of the day, the religious elite, the rulers, bust in and arrest him. Now, to put that in a modern day context, it would be like me at the end of this message saying, Hey, the band's gonna come up and close, but first, I need you, uh, or if you wanna give your life to Jesus, and SWAT team busts in, flex cuffs me, and is dragging me out. And while they're dragging me out, I'm like, Before the next song, you know, come up to pray this prayer. I mean, Peter's preaching it. And so they arrest Peter and John, and that's where we get into um, chapter four. So they valued. The gospel. It was everything to them. So let's pick up chapter 4, verse 1. I'm gonna read the first 21 verses. So hold tight. You can do it. I'm gonna bring some commentary um, here and there, just a little bit. So v- chapter one, verse, uh, or, sorry, chapter four, verse one. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest. And the captain of the temple, wouldn't you like to have that as your title? I'm the captain of the temple. I don't even know what that means, okay? But he's the captain of the temple. And the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, so you have this group of people that they arrest Peter and John. They're taking them out. And they are annoyed. They are so frustrated because the people are believing. Lives are being changed. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. So let me point out the Sadducees. The Sadducees are really frustrated and annoyed for two reasons. One, they hated Jesus. And the reason they hated Jesus is because he was a threat to their power. So the Sadducees were very legalistic. It was a, you have to do these rules and these rituals, and you have to do this and do this. And remember, Jesus came, even though he said, I'm not here to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He came and he was like, hey, I know you've heard it said this way, but I'm here to change that. I'm, I know you've been doing this, but let me kind of, it was more, he, really Jesus said, hey, it's more, it's less about ritual and more about relationship because I'm here now. And the Sadducees did not like that. It was a threat to their power and people were no longer just listening to the Sadducees and all their dictatorship. They were listening to Jesus and the people whose, peoples whose lives had been changed. But they also thought it was ridiculous that Jesus and the disciples proclaimed that Jesus resurrected. That was, they thought it was the dumbest idea ever. So as they're proclaiming this, the Sadducees are so mad and annoyed. And so think about this. If you're a Sadducee, you, are, you have no hope. There is no Messiah that has come. And that's because they were sad, you see. <laughs> I'm waiting for it, okay? Cheesy, my kids are like, that's cringy. All right, y'all are second service is better, okay? That's my cheesy pastor joke of the day, all right? But they hated, they hated Peter and John. They hated them. And so they arrest them, they pull them out in this, right? Because they're proclaiming Jesus. So they arrested him, verse four. They put him in custody until the next day for it, is, it was already evening. But many of those that heard the word believed and the number of men were about 5,000. Now just put this in context. In scripture, when you come to like, hey, 3,000 men or 5,000 men, most scholars would agree that when they say men, it's not just all individuals, they're counting men, and one man is, counts as one person, but it could be a whole family unit. So scholars believe that between eight to 10,000 people are now early followers in the movement of Christianity. And at the time, Jerusalem has, has been said to have about 40,000 in its population. So a quarter of it are believers. I mean, how incredible is that? So verse 5, on the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes, they gathered together in Jerusalem, all right? They gathered kind of in a war room, and with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were in the high priestly family. And they had set them in their midst, and they inquired. So they, they asked Peter and John, by what power or by what name did you do this? Okay? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, "Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed. Let it be known." So he's like, "If you're going to charge us for doing good, this man was paralyzed. I mean, you're going to that's ridiculous." But then they say, "But let me let me be clear in this. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you right now. He's on his own two feet. It was all Jesus. This Jesus is the stone that you rejected. In the, the builders, which have become, um, has become the cornerstone. Now get this, verse 12. And there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Essentially saying, Jesus is the only one that can save you. It's not your little rituals. It's not your rules. It's not your legality. It's not you pressing down your legalism on us. It's Jesus. He's the only one. Under heaven, that can save us. Verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. I mean, how could you? He's standing right there on two feet. How could you say anything? But when they commanded them to leave the council, the council conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that, that was a notable sign that was performed um, through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them, they called them back. They charged them not to speak or to teach. At all in the name of Jesus. Now listen to how Peter and John respond. But Peter and John answered them whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You can tell us to be quiet. And to shut our mouths. But what we've experienced, the gospel that we value, you're not going to keep us quiet. We cannot remain silent for what we have seen and heard. And when they had, no, had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. So here's the second point this morning. What they recognized is they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Jesus. There was something starkly different about Peter and John that they realized, man, they have been with Jesus. They were astonished, Scripture says, that these common, uneducated men had such boldness. They were so, so empowered by God and the Holy Spirit to speak to a council like that. And I love the beauty of it because if you think at the end of the Gospels, Peter denies Jesus. And now with his great boldness, he's standing up and saying, you're not going to make me be quiet about him. And what a beautiful picture of their time and their experience with Christ. They had been with Jesus. The outside world recognized something was different about them. Now think about this for us, for you and me. Our lives should look radically different. If you are a follower of Jesus, your life should be different. Two quick verses in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. The Gentiles were the sinners of the day. Keep it honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, may uh, see your good uh, deeds and then glorify God. They'll believe in God. Paul writes to the church um, In Colossians chapter 4, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. There was something radically different. Now, this is just my opinion. I think one of the biggest barriers or obstacles for people in 2023 to come to know Jesus, sure, there's doubt and questioning and all that stuff. But we don't do ourselves any favors as a church, capital C church, when believers, people who claim to be Christians, don't look any different than those that claim to not be Christians. And so why would someone be a follower of Jesus or decide to surrender their life to Christ when the person who says, I love Christ, doesn't look anything like Christ or like their life has been changed at all? And we all know people like that. And I don't mean that in a judgmental way. It's just the truth that I'm just saying, if I saw someone say, I love Jesus, you should be, you should be a Christian. In my life, I'm like, does not look any different than yours? I'd be like, what's the point? I'd rather do yard work on a Sunday. You know what I'm saying? What, there's nothing driving that. But for the disciples, something was radically different that, that these people said they've been with Jesus. Let that be said of our life. That when people encounter us, even though it might look weird and radical, they say there's something different about their life. It's different because they were walking, think about this, they were walking a living testimony of what Jesus had done in them and through them. And it was that very concept that drove everything that they did to say, God's got this. And what God has done in me, I want to share it with the world. And that's what they did. And they reflected that because their life was changed by him. Here's my last note kind of on this section. Is at the time, you can imagine, it's pretty easy to follow or believe in Jesus when you actually saw Jesus. You saw miracles or you had a close relative or friend that was healed or had a friend of a friend or you see what God is doing. I get it. It's a lot harder because we don't physically have Jesus. So it takes faith and trust. But remember back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus told the disciples, you will be my witnesses. That while we might not see Jesus right here physically, you and I are the witnesses. We have the responsibility to share Jesus. You and I, we cannot be passive with the gospel. We cannot be passive with the gospel, right? Others must see it in us and hear it from us. We can't just be like, okay, well, someday I will. Oh, yeah, not right now. They won't, they won't believe me. We, we got to be proactive, and others need to see it in us um, and hear it from us. Last point this morning, what we'll see at the end of um, chapter 3 is that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a common theme. And the Holy Spirit guided their life. And as Peter and John are let go, they, they huddle up. And, you know, they kind of said, hey, that was a close call. Let's not do that again. Let's just kind of chill on the preaching. You know what they do? They pray for more boldness. They pray for God to do more things in them and through them. And it brings us to verse 31. It says this, When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God, with boldness. Man, they had great boldness, and it was all really rooted because they were dependent on God. Now, here's how I want to end this morning. I know that third point was quick, but here, I want to end a little bit differently, and if you're a first-time guest, I know this might be awkward, and feel free to join in on us, or with us, but I want us to pray for boldness. I think oftentimes in our prayer life, when we talk to God, it's like, God, can you just help me with this? And it's, kind of shallow, I'm not saying it's not important, but it's kind of shallow and kind of, we kind of beat around the bush. I want us to pray for great boldness. And I wanna do that in two areas. One for you personally, I want you to, it's okay for you to pray for God to move in your life in such a way and you are praying with great boldness in that. But we also want you to pray just as a church that we would, as a church body, impact the Five Forks community and the upstate and around the world in such a way That we see Jesus do amazing things in where you work, where your kids go to school, in your neighborhood. And the only way that can happen is for us to pray in boldness and for God to do it. Right? Yeah, we have a responsibility. But what God is doing and stirring in our midst can only happen in the way that we want to see the gospel shared by God's hand doing it. So for us to end our service this morning, do that, I'm gonna pray. And then right where you're just, you can just stay seated. or If you wanna stand, that's fine. Maybe with someone that's next to you, if you wanna do that. If it's not weird, you know, you can do it with your husband or spouse or friend or just right where you are, just pray for that great boldness. And then, so I'm gonna pray, give you some time to do that and then the band will close this in a closing song. Let's pray together. Father, man, I'm personally just jealous of the value that Peter and John placed on the gospel. It was everything to them and it directed every step that they took in you and through you. And as your spirit just filled their lives, God, they walked in such great obedience and faith and boldness that by your hand, you did amazing things. Lives were changed and people were healed. People who were broken were restored. People who were lost were found. And God, I think it's fair to say that for every single one of us in this room, we want to see you change the lives of others. So first, God, we pray for boldness in our own life. That God, that you would show us, and even someone that's just wrestling with a relationship with you today, they would surrender their life to you. That's a bold move. And God, that we would pray for great boldness in us and through us for you to do something, but also collectively as a church, as a campus, for you to use us and to impact the lives of many. So God, we give this time to you, this time of boldness, and our closing song of worship. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. So just pray wherever you're at, where you're seated, and the band uh, will lead us.